If you're saying take it or leave it, well, obviously I have to leave it. I took my negotiating book, slapped it like this, threw it against the wall, it sprung open and all the papers flew out of it, <laughs> and I got up and walked out. You bring the clients, I'll do all the work, we'll split the fees 50-50. I used to say to him, I couldn't give you this much uninterrupted time if you came to Washington, short of the second coming. <laughs> <laughs> These sound bites from Charlene Barshevsky, Rex Tillerson, Steve Schwartzman, and Henry Kissinger are but a sample of the remarkable negotiators from whom you'll hear much more in today's inaugural episode of DealCraft, Insights from Great Negotiators. I'm Jim Sabinius, professor at Harvard Business School and director of the Harvard Negotiation Project at Harvard Law School. My career spans years of valuable experience in New York at Blackstone, as well as briefer stints in the U.S. Commerce and State Departments, the U.N., and decades of research at Harvard on effective negotiating strategies. I teach these strategies to advanced graduate students and senior executives and maintain an active consulting practice, always advising on at least a few complex negotiations. Not only is this fun, but it helps keep my academic work relevant to practice. In this DealCraft series, I'll share some cool deal stories and extract concepts and skills from some of the world's greatest negotiators. Rather than letting their invaluable experiences float off into the history books, I'll deeply probe them to crystallize strategies and tactics that you and others can profitably use in many different contexts. Over the years, I've conducted and analyzed many interviews with outstanding negotiators from business and finance, the public sector and diplomacy, as well as the artistic and not-for-profit worlds. In this DealCraft series, I'll especially focus on recipients of the Great Negotiator Award, sponsored by the Harvard-MIT Tufts Program on Negotiation. Along with insights from our in-depth interviews with nine former U.S. Secretaries of State about their most challenging negotiations. Toward the end of this episode, I'll tell you more about these and other negotiators whom I'll be featuring. Today's episode of DealCraft features critical moments in negotiations, or Pivotal points in the process where one party's actions made a real difference in the outcome. I'll analyze several of these moments, such as how Charlene Barshevsky handled a threatening ultimatum, Rex Tillerson's reaction to insults and backsliding, Steve Schwartzman's handling of an impasse with a Japanese company when Blackstone was a relatively fragile startup, and how Henry Kissinger unlocked an impasse with his Chinese counterpart. Other examples include how an English property developer dealt with an apparently extortionate demand and how Christiana Figueres persuaded the very reluctant Saudis to join the 2015 Paris Climate Deal. After reviewing each of these critical moments, I'll distill key lessons and insights to aid in your toughest negotiations. In the first of our examples, I'd like to introduce to you Charlene Barshevsky, a prominent lawyer who was head of international practice at Wilmer Hale, which is a top D.C.-based law firm. After a number of years in private practice, Charlene joined the government to later serve as the U.S. Special Trade Representative. Early in her tenure at STR, tasked with dealing what has become a perennial in U.S.-Chinese trade relations, in this case, counterfeit CDs, films, software, and so forth, that had become a very big political deal in the U.S., Barshevsky had slowly and methodically built up support among several sectors in the U.S. Businesses, not-for-profit groups, the White House, various non-U.S. trading partners with China. Working within China, she had made considerable headway. Getting to this point required some very sophisticated negotiation, 
in what later episodes I'll analyze as a multi-front negotiation campaign. When I was writing a case study about this episode, I spoke with a colleague of Barshevsky's who was in the room when a senior Chinese negotiator gave a threatening ultimatum. Barshevsky's colleague reported to me that she was cool under fire and turned around the situation. Well, that's not the whole story. To get a better picture, it's useful to realize that Barshevsky is short and slight, while her Chinese counterpart was a big, tall guy. I asked her to describe the incident. So this happened, it's probably two in the morning. Chinese negotiator became very angry, lunged across the table, physically lunged across the table. That scared me to death. Lunged across the table and said, pound on the table and said, that's it, take it or leave it. Most people thought, looking at me, I was completely calm, not at all perturbed, not shocked, not surprised. I just sat there. The reason I just sat there was that my heart was pounding in my chest so hard that I thought if I spoke, my voice would shake and he would know that he got to me. So I just sat quietly until my heart stopped pounding. And it probably took 30, 40 seconds, maybe a little longer, which is a long time when you're in the throes of a negotiation and everything just goes silent. And I said, well, what he put on the table was unacceptable. I said, if you're saying take it or leave it, well, obviously I have to leave it. But I don't think that's what you meant. And then I recharacterized what it was he said. And the reason I did that was because he knew after he lunged, he had made a mistake. You could see it in his eyes. He lunged, he sat back, his shoulders shifted slightly, and his eyes looked uncertain. So I knew he wasn't walking away anywhere. That wasn't the final offer. And he'd have a heart attack had I left the room. You could just see it. You saw it in his face. I recharacterized it. I said, I, I don't really think you mean take it or leave it in the sense that we should no longer be talking about this issue. I think what you're conveying to me, and I appreciate it fully, is that I need to give your proposal very serious thought. And that if I can't give it serious thought, well, then maybe we shouldn't be talking anymore. I don't think this is going to work, but I don't want to say that here because you've made it clear you want me to think about this and I intend to do that. Why don't we break and meet again in the morning? He was relieved. You could see it on his face. I suggest you pause for a moment to think about how Barshevsky responded to this lunge. She had several options. She could have walked out, escalated, ignored what he did, or tried to play the situation to her advantage, which is what she did. To decide how to respond, Barshevsky demonstrated a vital skill. Paying exquisitely close attention to the other side's actions gave her important clues as to what to do next. In order to regain her mental balance, Barshevsky waited, silently. Developing comfort with silence in negotiation is a useful practice. It can be almost irresistible, especially for North Americans, to fill silence with words. Instead, as Barshevsky did, it can be helpful to silently and mentally, quote, go to the balcony, unquote, to get your bearings and figure out how to react in a way that advances your interests. Barshevsky reacted to reestablish the psychological power balance in her favor and open the door to further discussions. So, a few key takeaways sparked by this episode, but borne out by research and experience elsewhere. 1. To inform your tactical choices in a negotiation, pay exquisitely close attention to your counterpart's verbal 
and nonverbal behavior and interpret it through the right cultural filters. 2. Become comfortable with silence in negotiation, to get your bearings, to think through the situation and your options, and to decide on the next moves. 3. If you decide to continue the negotiation after a hardball move by the other side, consider calmly and clearly reacting while effectively calling out that move, yet providing a face-saving way forward, if that would serve your interests. I would keep in mind, however, that this wasn't an isolated tactical choice. The Chinese lunge and ultimatum that Barshevsky handled, along with several other critical moments that I'll soon dissect, can be thought of as the dramatic, glistening tip of an iceberg, strikingly visible to all. This moment is but a small part of a vastly larger subsurface mass of deliberate negotiating actions away from the table that underpin success at the table. In later episodes of Dealcraft, I'll highlight and analyze these crucial, if less visible, moves to optimally set up a negotiator for great results. In Barshevsky's case, well before she confronted the ultimatum, she first had to win over a divided U.S. business community about the wisdom of confronting China over its intellectual property practices. Then, she had to bring various skeptical environmental, labor, and human rights groups on board as a prelude to persuading her executive branch colleagues and members of Congress, along with various Chinese trading partners. Having then built widespread support behind her approach, she was well-armed to face her belligerent, high-level Chinese counterpart. In short, Barshevsky's tactics at that critical moment can be seen as the dramatic tip of the negotiating iceberg. Yet these tactics were embedded in what we might think of as the massive subsurface part of that iceberg. This less visible foundation consisted of a long, sophisticated negotiating campaign that Barshevsky had strategically designed and was well into executing that put her very close to the ultimate deal. While today's episode focuses on what can be dramatic critical moments, it is easy to miss what is often the fuller, underlying story. Much of Dealcraft will later highlight the what, why, and how of these away-from-the-table strategic setup moves that enable tactical success in critical moments. Keep listening. Let's turn to a second, very different critical moment, which came in a negotiation between ExxonMobil and Yemen. We interviewed Rex Tillerson as part of a program in which we probed the most challenging negotiations of all former U.S. Secretaries of State. While we asked Tillerson about a number of diplomatic negotiations, I wanted to go back to an episode I'd read about, when as a much more junior executive at Exxon, he'd been involved in a fairly dramatic incident. After two years of negotiation with the oil authorities from Yemen, the Yemenis hired a new law firm to represent them. These new lawyers promptly began to retrade the deal. Let's listen in as I pose a question to Rex Tillerson about this critical moment. There's a Wall Street Journal account of a moment in that negotiation where you allegedly threw a five-inch book across the table. And I don't know whether this is right or not, but could you comment on the theatrical side of negotiation? The book throwing against it is true. What happened is the Yemenis had had the law firm Kudair Brothers in Paris representing them through these negotiations all the way through the first two years. Uh, in the summer, the Yemenis wanted to move the negotiations to Paris. They were trying to push it to a conclusion. So I moved into the George Sank Hotel for most of the summer. Kudair Brothers' offices were on the shines. The Yemenis demanded a lot of things out of Kudair Brothers, and 
Cadet Brothers made the tactical mistake of giving the Yemenis All-American Express cards so they could pay their bills because they didn't have money to pay. We got back to Sana'a in the fall, and the Cadet Brothers issued a, a bill to the Yemenis to pay for a very, very large American Express bill they had run. The Yemenis refused to pay it. Mm-hmm. Foster Cadet Brothers' partner his job. The Yemenis then fired Cadet Brothers. We were 95% of the way through this negotiation, and they fired the people that had been represented. Wow. They hired a Madison Avenue law firm. We went to New York for the next session, and their new attorneys decided they were going to take a tough stance to show the Yemenis how tough they were. And I listened to them berate our side for about 15 or 20 minutes. So let's pause for a moment. Put yourself in Rex Tillerson's shoes. What would you do at this point, and why? Do you patiently listen until the other side reaches a stopping point in their tirade, then firmly seek to shift the discussion to more productive topics? Do you interrupt? Do you quietly walk out? Do you do something more dramatic? Let's listen to what Tillerson did. The Yemenis had an advisor, Nordine Alassi, who most of you probably know, former Algerian oil minister. Nordine and I had become very good interlocutors together. And I looked over at Nordine, and I'm giving this look like, you know, what is this? And he just kind of does one of these. And so I looked at the guy across the table. I said, if you think I'm going back to the very beginning of this negotiation and relitigate all the things that are wrong with American companies, you're crazy. And I, I said, I'm done. I took my negotiating book, slapped it like this, threw it against the wall. It sprung open and all the papers flew out of it. And I got up and walked out. And I walked around the offices of this Madison Avenue law firm and I found a coffee bar. And I sat down and I was reading the Wall Street Journal. And Nordine comes around. He says, Mr. Rex, he always called me Mr. Rex, you have to come back to the table. I said, Nordine, I'm done. I'm done. That's it. You know, this is like early December. I said, I'm going home for Christmas. No, no, you can't leave. He said, you have to come back. So I went back to the room and I just sat down. My my book is still scattered all over the room. (laughs) Somebody else is leading our side. And I just sat there and didn't say a word. And I left. At the end of the day, I went back to the hotel. And that evening, I get a knock on the door. And it's the lead negotiator for the Yemenis. And he said, would you be willing to take a call from our prime minister? He wants to talk to you. And so they hooked us up on the phone. The prime minister said, I understand we had a rather tough day. And I said, Mr. Prime Minister, you know what we're trying to do. I said, we all want a good outcome here. Everybody's going to do well. But I said, if if you guys are going to want to go back and start all over, you're going to find a different set of people across the table from you. And he said, Mr. Tillerson, I promise you, we will close all the issues before the end of the week. Went back to the table. We closed everything. Well, Tillerson got the result that he wanted. Was he smart? Was he lucky? Or both? How risky was this move? Let's think about that and then hear Tillerson's explanation. I wanted that lawyer to know, you're coming into this thing within the two minutes, two minutes to go in the game. Don't act like you're here in the first quarter. And the second was to say to the Yemenis, you brought this guy in with two minutes to go. You brought him in. He's your problem, not mine. And so it was intentional to also let them know that if this is where we're going, we can all start over. And it worked because the prime minister called me whom I had developed a a relationship with. So I think you're right. You don't want it to be emotion. It needs to be by intention. If it's emotion only, you're liable to pull that trigger at the wrong time. During later conversations with Tillerson, he stressed that anger in negotiation should be a strategy, not purely an emotion. But I pushed, and he said, yes, in this case, the anger was genuine. But so was the calculation. There is an intriguing comparative discussion to be had over Tillerson's dramatic gesture versus Barshevsky's unexpected silence, calm rejection of her counterpart's assertion, 
and choice to opt for a face-saving close. Obviously, neither of their actions exhausts the possibilities for responding to a hardball move at a critical moment. Each individual case depends on the context, culture, and people involved. But a few comments. First, surely gender dynamics played a role, with Barshevsky likely running greater risks had she made a move comparable to Tillerson's. Second, her moves focused directly and explicitly on her counterpart's tactics, whereas his more striking actions targeted the principles behind the agents with whom Tillerson already had productive relationships in the case of the prime minister, as well as with the Algerian advisor to the other side. Third, both actions suggest the importance of a clear willingness to walk away if necessary, if the other side sees real value at stake in the deal. The risk of a rupture should be smaller. But how you convey that willingness to walk can make a significant difference. Fourth, after the threatening ultimatum, Barshevsky opted for silence while she calmed herself and chose her next move. By contrast, Tillerson had endured a 15- to 20-minute tirade of insults as he contemplated what to do next. Neither person reacted purely by instinct. In fact, Tillerson stressed the dramatically expressed anger, while genuine in this case, should be a strategy rather than a pure emotion. Each choice reflected the wisdom of my friend William Urey's excellent book, Getting Past No, in situations like this. Mentally, quote, go to the balcony, unquote, to assess the situation and to decide on next steps. But I'd like to frame this topic of critical moments in terms of two processes characteristic of great negotiators, which I'll call zooming out and zooming in. In my experience, both as a negotiator and studying great negotiators, I find that great negotiators often iterate between two complementary perspectives. They zoom out to their larger strategies, and they zoom in tactically to their individual counterparts. Of course, some negotiators are great at zooming out to the analytical and strategic, while others are terrific interpersonally and tactically in the zooming in phase. But often, the strategic analysts are interpersonally inept, while others who are very skilled people people can be quite weak on broader analysis and strategy. A differentiating characteristic I've found is that great negotiators tend toward both characteristics. They zoom out and they zoom in iteratively with each process informing the other. This is not a two-step process, wherein step one, one zooms out to a strategy, then in step two, one zooms in to execute it. Rather, great negotiators smoothly go back and forth, bringing the macro and the micro into alignment. Now, what does this zooming in, zooming out business have to do with my choice of critical moments? To find the critical moment I featured in this podcast, I sought zoomed-in interactions with counterparts at the table that mattered in the execution of larger strategies, generally including away-from-the-table, zoomed-out moves. This was especially true in the case of Charlene Barshevsky, whose carefully constructed, multi-front negotiation campaign was nearing fruition as she faced what I might call the lunge. Indeed, soon thereafter, Barshevsky faced an altogether more serious but equally hardball move, an unprecedented invitation to discuss her issue with the Chinese president. Now that may sound like an honor, but it really marked an escalation in that after her patient diplomacy had been exhausted, 
she was very close to imposing costly sanctions. Rather than closing some 29 factories that were churning out counterfeit items, music, movies, software, by the millions, the Chinese had only made a token effort, closing but two. If Barshevsky met with the president, the issue would expand from this relatively modest trade question to overall U.S.-Chinese relations, and it would effectively defang her threat of sanctions. So how did she respond? The president wanted to meet with me. The Chinese had just closed two factories. Well, two is not 29 or 17, or two is two. Two is not what we asked for. And two was, would have been a political deal. That's what that is. Well, we, we weren't in it for a political deal. So I thought about it a little bit. I didn't ask Washington because I knew what the answer would be, and it would be the wrong answer. So I conveyed the following, that I was extremely flattered that it would be a privilege to meet with the president, but I couldn't possibly. China had closed two factories, for which we were very grateful, but that's not enough. And so the prospect of the U.S. needing to impose sanctions increased. And to agree to meet with your president, I said, and then impose sanctions would be a terrible It would be an insult. It would be an embarrassment to your president. It would be an embarrassment to you. And I would never want to put the bilateral relationship in that kind of context. So the answer needs to be no, regrettably, but no. In fact, she was too polite to say it. But the call from the Chinese president meant that, in effect, she had won in the area of trade. And the other side was desperately upping the ante. She recognized this reality as well as the fact that her colleagues in the U.S. almost certainly would have pressured her to meet the president. So unilaterally, and either boldly or foolishly or both, she declined the invitation, graciously but firmly. I hope you noticed the language. But then, of course, she had to convey her unilateral action to Washington, D.C. How did this go? Let's listen. At the time, there were people waiting in the situation room. They were hopeful I would conclude the talks. In Washington. That day in Washington, yeah. Warren Christopher, who then was Secretary of State, a bunch of other people. Ultimately, when all of this was over, called and said, I just wanted you to know that Jiang Zemin wanted to meet, and I said no. You know that special silence over a phone line that's so pregnant? Well, I got that silence. And I said, this is going to work out. And I explained why I said no, because we weren't going to take the deal, or I wasn't going to take the deal as it existed then. And you can't possibly say yes and then impose sanctions. And why should we give up our leverage? And by the way, if the president of the country is willing to meet, they're pretty concerned. So they'll move. And they did. Wow. We could debate whether Barshevsky was effectively insubordinate or courageous or something else. But what is evident is her focus on her purposes and interest, which were to do a real trade deal, not a cosmetic one. And if Washington rebuked her, even fired her, she had a lucrative, prestigious career waiting. So what insights do I take from this negotiation between Barshevsky and the Chinese president? First, you need to be alert to what might be disguised critical moments. It would have been easy, exciting, and even an honor to say yes to meeting with the president of China especially for a, quote, mere, unquote, trade minister like Barshevsky. Second, she found a way to respond decisively but graciously. Finally, 
In this case, she needed a very clear sense of her driving purposes, which were to get a real trade deal that would matter in practice, not merely a fine-sounding deal on paper. Equipped with this clarity, and with an excellent alternative if she were fired, she acted. I get very different reactions when I discuss this negotiation with business people who generally admire her clarity of vision and courage. Professional diplomats, on the other hand, more often than not disapprove of her unilateral actions. I tend to align with the former view, especially given her willingness to accept any consequences, but I respect the diplomatic perspective as well. Regardless of where you come out on this, Varshevsky faced a critical moment and acted on it in a way that aligned with the policies she was sent to further, and it ultimately worked. For the next three or four years, this form of intellectual property theft in China dropped dramatically. But of course, this is a perennial problem, taking ever-evolving forms, and not solved to this day. But for our purposes, this was one hell of a critical moment and a gutsy response. From the critical moments involving hardball moves that we analyzed with Barshevsky and Tillerson, let's shift our focus to some critical moments where savvy moves were essential to breaking some stubborn impasses. Sometimes this happens when an underlying interest that is driving otherwise incompatible positions becomes evident. Good negotiators probe for such interests, whether they're tangible or intangible. That distinction between positions and interests can be critical. After speaking one time to an HBS alumni group, an interesting example of this came about. The head of an English property development firm spoke to me after my talk on his experience where his firm had assembled most of the land in an area outside London that was needed to build a large regional hospital. Yet a key parcel remained, and the owner stubbornly resisted selling. The small property was appraised at a mere 80,000 pounds. The developer had successively offered 90,000, 100,000, then 120,000, and ultimately 200,000 pounds, all to no avail. The owner seemed to be quite well aware of the parcel's pivotal role for the planned development, and she seemed determined to exploit her powerful position. With the project hanging in the balance, the firm's chief executive arranged a personal appointment with the owner. When he arrived in his black car at the property in question, it appeared to be a somewhat shabby but neat cottage. The owner, who turned out to be an elderly woman, invited him in. And what else? Offered him a cup of tea and some biscuits. After some friendly small talk and looking around, the chief executive noticed several framed pictures of a small dog. In the course of polite conversation, the owner sadly described how dear Fluffy, quote-unquote, had passed away three years ago and was buried in her garden behind the cottage. Well, naturally, the chief executive asked to see the beloved pet's gravesite, and I think you can probably tell where this is going. Following a moment of quiet contemplation in the tiny garden, he delicately asked the owner whether she'd ever considered what would happen to this spot as the neighborhood inevitably changed over the years. Wouldn't a proper memorial, well-tended in perpetuity, be a more fitting remembrance of Fluffy? The owner's mood lifted, and she agreed almost immediately to the chief executive's proposal. Well, the property development firm expedited arrangements for Fluffy's remains to be reinterred on the grounds of a prestigious pet cemetery, 
Let me hasten to add that the cottage sale was closed for less than 100,000 pounds, and the regional hospital project was back on track. On signing the sales papers, the owner was heard to remark, What does a childless old woman like me, without heirs, have any use for more money, as long as I can rent a nice flat close to Fluffy? Which she did. Now that's a quirky episode, but it underscores a very important and broader aspect of negotiating, especially at critical moments. Have you fully probed beyond apparently incompatible positions, enough to understand the full set of interests of the parties? At one level, this is very simple advice, but it recurs in high-level settings. And, once one has uncovered a wider set of interests, it may be possible to meet those interests with a degree of creativity, which, of course, is another vital ingredient of handling such moments. Indeed, in deals in which I've been involved at critical moments, I sometimes ask myself and others on my team, quote, where's Fluffy, unquote. And a Fluffy equivalent surprisingly often turns up, but only if you're looking for it. Let's now turn to a much more consequential example with a certified star negotiator. In this category, I'd like to turn to some early moves made by Steve Schwartzman. On its cover, Forbes magazine anointed Steve as, quote, Wall Street's greatest dealmaker, unquote. A personal note here. I left Harvard in 1985 to work for Pete Peterson, co-founder with Steve Schwartzman of Blackstone. I was there for some years, starting at the very beginning of the firm, during which I learned a great deal. In fact, I think of the years that I spent at Blackstone as an enormously important part of my deal-making education. I carefully watched Steve and Pete and enjoyed a modest role in a number of really interesting Blackstone deals. At that time, the firm was a pretty fragile operation, nothing like the financial behemoth it has since become, and those negotiations were often really make or break for the firm. I recently got together with Steve over Zoom for several hours to rehash, discuss, analyze, and draw lessons from a whole bunch of early Blackstone negotiations. In two subsequent episodes of this Dealcraft podcast series, I will use those interviews to go into much greater depth on a number of early Blackstone negotiations where Steve took the lead. These were essential to the firm's later success, and I think we can learn a lot from the in-depth analysis of several negotiations in these two forthcoming podcast episodes. Stay tuned. But, given the theme of today's episode, let's turn to an analysis of a single critical moment in one of those negotiations. I will highlight a very simple move of Steve's that had profound consequences for Blackstone's growth from an iffy startup into a global financial leader. For perspective, the initial investment in the firm that Pete and Steve made was a relatively tiny $400,000. Yet by 2022, Blackstone had almost a trillion dollars of assets under management, and Steve was recently number 24 on the Forbes 400 list of billionaires. But the critical moment I'll shortly discuss took place early in the firm's life when it was on very shaky ground. A bit of context. Pete Peterson had been a high-profile chairman and CEO of Lehman Brothers as well as the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, and his young protege Steve Schwartzman was head of M&A at Lehman and widely recognized as an elite dealmaker. Well, by various paths, they left Lehman and founded Blackstone. Very early in its history, Pete and Steve wanted to pivot from advisory work, at which they had excelled with high-level corporate clients in their Lehman days. Their new focus at Blackstone was to raise a substantial fund to invest in newly popular leveraged buyouts. They confidently wrote over 500 investors, 
including some of their very top prospects. They received lots of positive and enthusiastic responses, but nobody actually invested. Basically, the response was, you guys are great advisors, but you have no track record as investors. So they refined their investment proposal and focused on 17 high-profile potential investors, made personal visits, yet 16 of these turned them down. Finally, Prudential Insurance conditionally committed $100 million. But that commitment depended on other commitments. Pete and Steve were really at their wit's end, but displayed the kind of persistence that's characteristic of great negotiators. As a kind of last-chance focus, Steve was persuaded that Japan could be fertile ground for possible investment in the fund. There were capital-rich securities firms in Japan, among them Nomura and Nikko. These financial firms were increasingly following Japanese industrial firms to America, like Toyota, Honda, and Mitsubishi. To help them raise capital from these Japanese firms, Pete and Steve hired bankers from First Boston and Deutsche Bank, who knew the Japanese market very well. But the message they consistently got from these Japan-savvy bankers was pretty discouraging. They essentially told Steve that Japanese firms simply had no interest in the kind of private equity investments that Blackstone was urging. Nevertheless, characteristically, Steve pushed really hard, and the bankers reluctantly set up New York appointments with both Nico and Nomura. The bankers were reluctant because they were convinced that there was no way the Japanese firms would actually invest. It would damage the bankers' relationship with these important Japanese companies to urge an appointment with Steve that would almost certainly result in a turndown to what Blackstone had in mind. Let's listen to Steve's description of this critical moment. He said, okay, I'll get appointments with two of them. So he got me appointments with Nomura and Nico. And the first appointment was with Nico. You know, there were like this little bitty office. There was two Japanese guys who couldn't speak English. Is this in New York or Tokyo? In New York. And one guy who used to work at Bankers Trust, which had a very small M&A business. His name was Bob. So I had this meeting, went into a very small conference room, and I gave him the private equity pitch. And, you know, they said they have no interest. So I said, that's, that's really too bad. I wish you did. So after Steve had carefully explained the rationale and terrific prospects for Aniko Investment in Blackstone's fund, Aniko firmly said, we have no interest, period. This is a common challenge. Incompatible positions. Blackstone basically says, invest for all these good reasons. Nico said, no. So what are the options for Schwartzman at this critical moment? He could admit that his Japanese savvy bankers were right, leave and try someplace else that was more promising. He could explain the advantages of the fund in a different way, perhaps more slowly and with simpler language. He could ask for Nico's objections and press for what it would take for them to say yes. Something else? What was interesting is how Steve, in fact, responded. He said, if you're not interested in investing in our fund, what do you really want to do in the United States? Now, that's an interesting move because it opens the door to a wider set of interests and concerns that Nico may have. And in fact, he fairly quickly learned that they were interested in helping their Japanese clients buy valuable and complementary U.S. assets to augment the capabilities of various Japanese firms that were coming to North America. Steve pointed out that there were 
several problems with Nico trying to undertake this activity itself, which it wanted to do rather than simply hire a U.S. investment banking firm on its behalf. Mergers and acquisitions in the United States are pretty technically and financially complex, and it wasn't clear that Nico had those capabilities. And a successful M&A business hugely benefits from deep and broad relationships within the relevant industry. Nico didn't have any of these either. Steve essentially indicated that they were unlikely to succeed in what they wanted to do with respect to U.S. M&A. But naturally, Steve had a proposal. No one wants to fail. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I, I said, you, you have clients. They want to come to America. They want to buy things. So I'm one of the top people in the world doing M&A work. So how about this as an idea? You bring the clients. I'll do all the work. Your clients will be successful. You'll be successful. And you, you and we will, will split the fees 50-50. All you have to do is bring the clients. And maybe if you do that, you'll get more and more business. And you'll invest in our private equity fund. So we talked, I left, you know, and I sort of did the same thing over at uh, Nomura. Nomura was a larger, more powerful company. So instead of limiting the negotiation to the merits or lack of merits of investing in their fund, Steve broadened the conversation to see what their interests, in fact, were. And Nico's interests went way beyond the possibility of a fund investment. This realization opened a door to the likelihood that Blackstone could solve Nico's problems. And at least tacitly in return, Nico could solve Blackstone's problem by investing in his private equity fund. There were lots of tactical twists and turns to this story when Pete and Steve went to Japan and made the pitch for this approach to Nico's top management. But finally, the Japanese firm accepted Steve's M&A idea and agreed to invest $100 million in Blackstone's first fund. Then, Nico suggested to other members of its industrial group, the Mitsubishi Group, that they consider investing as well. The net result of this negotiation was to move Prudential's commitment, which was conditional, to a solid commitment, or call it a circle, in fundraising terms. I want to stress just how important this door-opening question of Steve's was, especially after he and Pete had endured well over 500 turndowns and were almost at the end of their possibilities. But for now, let's see how Steve characterized the impact of this deal. That was one of the two critical things in the whole first part of the firm's history. The first part was getting a prudential. But in Japan, we ended up raising about $330 million out of 850 because the, the $100 million from Nico they were part of the Mitsubishi group. And so we went around for the rest of the week having meetings with people from the Mitsubishi group, but they don't all say Mitsubishi in their name. So we thought we were meeting new people. Everybody, place we went, we got a circle. We were like genius salesmen because you could have had a robot show up because once Nico greenlighted you on behalf of this giant group, everybody else in the group gave you money. So that's really how the firm got developed. Had I not refused to listen to the first Boston people, this never would have happened. And when I was sitting there with a dead deal, made my presentation in New York, and there was no interest in them investing, turning that into something they were interested in that was critical to their company, that's what made it happen. 
it's pretty simple, Jim, that when you're dealing with somebody, if you can figure out what they're interested in and whether you can satisfy that, then you, you unlock some amazing door. My objective was money for the fund. However, I didn't mind money for our M&A business. That was fun too. That's good. And so we were doing two things that were really important, but we were doing for them. I'd like to underscore what Steve himself took from this experience as a key lesson. And you may recall what he said is, when you're dealing with somebody, if you can figure out what they're interested in and whether you can satisfy it, then you can unlock some amazing doors. I often find in negotiation that people have an agenda. They make the case. There's a yes or a no. And they can stick with their case and try to deal with the objections. Or they can open things up and move beyond the issue that they know to be on the table to a wider set of concerns of the other party. And who knows? Really interesting possibilities may open up. That's a key lesson from a critical moment in the life of Blackstone, which of course went on to become a global leader. A lot had to do with that critical moment. It's not that this couldn't have happened, but that critical moment proved key to Blackstone's growth and ultimate success. Sometimes interests are clear, but there does not seem any feasible way of reconciling them. However, at certain critical moments, a creative spark can enable agreements that formerly seemed impossible. A brief example involving Henry Kissinger and the People's Republic of China is instructive. Just a bit of history. Between 1949 and 1971, the relationship between the United States and the People's Republic of China was unremittingly hostile. There were frequent propaganda attacks, often virulent in both directions. And of course, the Chinese sided with the North Koreans in the extraordinarily bloody Korean War. During this period, U.S. diplomatic recognition of China remained completely out of the question. However, for a number of reasons which I won't recount here, Richard Nixon, through his then National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger, began to explore closer relations between the two countries. Now, during this period, despite non-recognition, the U.S. and China had held innumerable meetings at the ambassadorial level to explore mutual recognition. Yet the involved ambassadors never found a way to reconcile their conflicting interests. The U.S., of course, backed Taiwan, while China regarded Taiwan as merely a rebellious province. And, of course, this continues in many respects to this day. Yet, for various geopolitical reasons, President Nixon thought it would be in the U.S. national interest to forge some kind of a relationship with China. To enable this, in July 1971, Henry Kissinger feigned illness while on a trip to Pakistan and didn't appear in public for a period of time, when he was actually on a secret mission to Beijing to negotiate with the Chinese Premier, Zhou Enlai. When we interviewed Kissinger at Harvard, I asked him about this man, Zhou Enlai, with whom he would soon negotiate a very critical moment. Here's me asking the question. It certainly seems to us that you had some impressive negotiating counterparts in China. Yeah. Who on your list, who you would count as among the most impressive negotiating counterparts that you faced? And perhaps take us to a moment where there was a real challenge that you had to deal with and how you did it. You asked me about negotiating partners. The Chinese method of negotiation is very conceptual and 
their representatives are usually extremely good. Would you agree with that? So by the time I got to China, even at a time when things were totally dead, be no contact at all, they knew a lot about me. And they'd read everything I'd written, and I didn't know much about them. Our principal interlocutor for the first three years was Zhou Enlai. Mao was there as a philosophical guide to the Chinese delegation. But Mao wasn't a negotiator. Zhou Enlai was brilliant and charming and thoughtful and seemed, for those of us who came from Washington, I used to say to him, I couldn't give you this much uninterrupted time if you came to Washington, short of the second coming. <laughs> he preferred to work at night, so we usually started late afternoon and went to one or two in the morning. Meticulously prepared, very thoughtful, not confrontational, but tenacious. With this characterization in mind, let's turn to the critical issue which had to do with the relationship between Taiwan and Beijing. Taiwan, of course, claimed to be the legitimate government of the whole of China. But the People's Republic adamantly claimed that Taiwan was merely a rebellious province of the larger entity. As Kissinger told us in an interview, quote, we needed a formula acknowledging the unity of China, which was the one point on which Taiwan and Beijing agreed, but without supporting the claim of either the failure to find such a formula had contributed to impasse in over 160 prior meetings, unquote. Now you could put on your creative hats and try to think about how you might get past this critical moment that had stumped countless ambassadorial-level efforts. Yet, I will cut to the chase by recounting the crucial sentence that Kissinger crafted. It became known as the Shanghai Communique. Quote, the United States acknowledges that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Straits maintain that there is but one China. The United States government does not challenge that position. Unquote. The crucial sentence again. Quote, the United States acknowledges that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Straits maintain that there is but one China. The United States government does not challenge that position. Unquote. As you can see, this sentence permitted the People's Republic to maintain its claim on Taiwan, while it implicitly acknowledged Taiwan's claim to the whole of the mainland. And it allowed the United States, which still sought to maintain a level of support for Taiwan, to pursue recognition of the People's Republic without repudiating Taiwan's claims. As long as Beijing did not force a resolution of the inconsistency inherent in that sentence, which it did not, this elegant formulation enabled U.S.-Chinese cooperation for the next decade. And Beijing did not force this issue, since, as Kissinger and Nixon correctly calculated, the People's Republic seriously desired to establish closer relationships with the United States, mainly to serve as a counterweight to the Soviet Union that at the time seemed to be threatening China. As Kissinger explained to me, there was an underlying shared rationale we started from the premise that we had a common objective, which was to stabilize relations. And so we managed to solve the Shanghai communique before Nixon ever went there. This creative resolution at a critical moment represents a classic example of what Kissinger referred to as creative ambiguity. This is a device that can be very useful if the time that it buys leads to an improvement in relationships such that the parties can take the next positive steps. 
But of course, if creative ambiguity merely papers over fatal differences, the inevitable explosion can be even worse. Yet in this case, without a doubt, the Shanghai communique represented an elegant solution of apparently incompatible interests at a critical moment in Kissinger's negotiation. This sentence enabled U.S.-Chinese cooperation for the next decade until formal recognition took place. One can certainly debate its merits and what this action ended up doing to Taiwan, as well as its fuller ramifications. But at that critical moment, that piece of creativity really mattered. In fact, Kissinger remarked, quote, I do not think that anything I did or said impressed Zhou Enlai as much as this ambiguous formula with which both sides were able to live for nearly a decade, unquote. Thus far, we've looked at critical moments involving Charlene Barshevsky and Rex Tillerson, where the other side played hardball. And drawing on an English property developer, Steve Schwartzman and Henry Kissinger, we analyzed critical moments where an impasse could be surmounted by probing, by open-ended questions, by uncovering interests, and by designing deals that creatively met those interests. Next, I'd like to shift gears to climate negotiations, where a key player, Costa Rica's Cristiana Figueres, would soon face a very critical moment. She knew that this moment would be arriving, took steps to prepare for it, and deployed impressive powers of persuasion to meet this moment successfully. In 2009, the Copenhagen negotiations were the source of great hope in the community of people committed to combating climate change. Yet Copenhagen turned out to be a huge disappointment. There was global despair around ever taking any meaningful action toward climate change. To get the process back on track, longtime Costa Rican diplomat Cristiana Figueres was asked by the UN Secretary General to take the lead in UN negotiations that would take place in Paris in 2015. Harvard's program on negotiation honored Cristiana Figueres in 2022 as that year's great negotiator. Figueres deeply impressed all of us during her visit with her humility, her humanity, and yet her drive and skill. There were many intriguing and critical moments during those Paris negotiations, which I may discuss in a future episode. But for now, I want to focus on one critical moment. Cristiana Figueres went for an ambitious deal, but she also sought to be unanimous, both to maximize its value and staying power. Now, gaining unanimous support is a challenging aspiration, since once you declare it to be your objective, you give blocking power to the most reluctant party. And naturally, there were many opponents of a demanding climate deal. Among them was one of the world's largest oil and gas producers, Saudi Arabia. Figueres discussed how skillful the Saudi negotiators were at blocking progress, yet she had to find a way to get them on board. So let's listen to her description of what she faced. Very, very capable negotiators. Right? They would go in and you have many different negotiations going on at the same time in different rooms, different tracks. And they would go into one room and go throw in a wrench and then leave. And then the next room, throw in and leave. And you could just watch them. It was like a domino effect. And they knew exactly where the Achilles heel was of every single negotiation that was taking place. And they would just go for it. I mean, just brilliant. Now, the Saudis, as major producers of hydrocarbon, had a strong interest in not being constrained by a climate deal. And yet Figueres needed them on board. Think for a moment about how you might approach this challenge and prepare for an inevitable critical moment of truth in her negotiations with this powerful country. 
To prepare the ground for bringing the Saudis on board, Figueres took a number of steps. She made a point of traveling to Saudi Arabia at least three times. She wanted to dress in a way that demonstrated respect for their customs, including the highly conservative dress code for women. As she said, if they want me to wear an abaya, I'll wear an abaya. In her conversations with Saudi leaders, she came to understand that near synonyms for phrases commonly used in UN negotiations were sometimes important. So, for example, instead of using the term carbon output, she began consistently to use the term emissions. This meant that the Saudis could include other types of climate-damaging emissions, such as nitrous oxide and hydrofluorocarbons, for which other countries were predominantly responsible. And in speeches before the UN, she made a point of using terms of this kind that were more amenable to the Saudis, which its negotiators both noticed and appreciated. She also demonstrated a kind of empathy for their situation. She told us, quote, The Saudis are sitting on a vast reserve of cheap oil. Can you blame them for trying to protect that resource and the income it generates for as long as they can? I don't blame them. It's understandable. Let's do a thought experiment. I come from a country that has only hydro and wind power resources. If I'd been born in a country with fossil fuel reserves, would I have had a different opinion about what's good for the world? Probably. Unquote. Well, this kind of empathy and sensitivity to language certainly went some distance. But let's see how Christiana was finally able to persuade the Saudis to join what was a pretty aggressive climate deal. I decided to pay a lot of attention to them. And I traveled to most countries, not all, but most countries in the lead up to Paris. I traveled three times to Saudi Arabia to speak to the Minister of Energy, who's at the same time the head of Saudi Aramco. And I really wanted to understand from them, how do they see this moving forward? Because they are, not just they, but all the countries in the Gulf country are already one of the hottest countries in the world, hottest region. I don't know if any of you have been in any of those Gulf region countries in the summer. It really is unbearable. And it's getting worse. They don't have any rivers. They don't have any lakes. They don't have any fresh water. They have to desalinate every single drop of water. They import all their food. They are completely dependent on all other countries for their survival, despite the fact that they're so rich. And so I just really wanted to understand, so how do you see this going forward? And it took quite a bit of traveling to them, but also during other opportunities where we were together to really develop a sense of trust with them. And I saw the moment when the Minister of Energy understood that climate change would make human life in Saudi Arabia impossible. I was on a flight on my way back from an oil field in a Saudi Aramco little jet because they don't do propellers. And we were sitting next to each other and he began to put on the table several options of what could bring them into an agreement. And I just said, how are you going to deal with that? Is there anything that other countries can do for you? A very different question than what can you do for the rest of the world? He took out a little napkin that looks like this, and he wrote down the words economic diversification. And I went, okay, so let me understand this. If the Paris Agreement recognizes economic diversification as a true, sincere contribution to climate change mitigation efforts, 
is that something that would be important to you? And his answer was yes. Because what he didn't want was to be pegged into the hole of being the demons, the, you know, the spoilers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The recognition that he wanted is that Saudi Arabia would contribute to global efforts by diversifying their economy. So that was evidently the deal to be struck to ensure that the text in Paris had that. Anybody who was around there knows that is what brought them into the concert of the nations. I take four lessons from Christiana Figueres about anticipating and preparing for critical moments. In her case, the moment of truth for persuading Saudi Arabia to sign the treaty. First, recognize likely critical moments that will be upcoming. Like Charlene Barshevsky with President Zhang Zemin, Figueres recognized how critical this moment would be. She knew the Saudis had been deeply opposed to the deal. She knew persuasion was her best option. Indeed, there was no feasible force she could muster, nor would that have been preferable. Second, take steps to set up the most favorable context for that likely critical moment. For example, Figueres visited Saudi Arabia at least three times, demonstrating her commitment and seeking to build personal trust. She showed respect for local customs, as well as an understanding of and empathy for Saudi Arabia's situation. She even stated that had she been born in Saudi Arabia, maybe she would feel as they do. And she found low-cost ways to align herself with Saudi preferences, including consistently using climate-related terms they preferred. Third, recognize the interests that your counterpart will likely see in that critical moment that you could help make salient. For Figueres, this involved emphasizing how impossible climate change would make life in Saudi Arabia, both in terms of unbearable temperatures and the complete lack of fresh water. She also identified that country's interest in not being seen as a climate spoiler and inquiring what other countries could do to help the Saudi predicament. Fourth, seek creative means to satisfy their interests along with yours. In her case, this meant recognizing that the Saudi goal and play to diversify its economy would ultimately help mitigate climate change. Perhaps even more significantly is the fact that, by Saudi Arabia's joining to help make the treaty unanimous, the treaty itself would have far greater force and legitimacy globally. And it is rare for consensus to occur between nearly all nations on any topic which makes the 2015 Paris Agreement unique. Now, most of us know that the commitments made in Paris were insufficient to stop climate change, and many countries haven't even lived up to those inadequate commitments. Yet, when you talk to serious and informed climate advocates, the point they make over and over is that even with its shortcomings, the Paris Agreement represented a key turning point. For the first time, It embodied the world's universal commitment to prevent the global average temperature from rising more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, and for each country to reach net zero emissions by 2050, both agreements, which had, until this deal, been rejected by major powers. After the climate catastrophe of Copenhagen in 2009, had Paris also failed, the situation would be incalculably worse. And there's some bright spots. The Paris Agreement has proved to be resilient, Although Donald Trump pulled the U.S. out of it, it did not lead to an exodus of like-minded leaders, and the U.S. rejoined under President Biden. Rather than giving China and India a pass to pollute, as some opponents have claimed about the Paris Treaty, the pact represents the first time those two major developing countries have agreed to concrete and time-specific climate commitments. And remember, it's not a static deal, but rather 
has created a clear framework for all countries to lower emissions over time and periodically strengthen those commitments. As such, Paris stands as a vital collective commitment, though imperfectly realized, but universally accepted. Christiana Figueres deserves enormous credit. Although a bit over the top, Scientific American headlined its analysis of this agreement with, quote, how Christiana Figueres saved the planet, unquote, and went on to say, one could argue that Christiana Figueres, a 61-year-old Costa Rican diplomat, warded off global catastrophe. She orchestrated the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, which, for the first time, got virtually all nations to take action on greenhouse emissions. A bit more soberly, Nicholas Stern, a former UK finance minister, who now leads a major climate institute, emphasized that, quote, Christiana's contribution to international climate negotiations has been really extraordinary. She's gifted with an outstanding ability to see where we need to go as a world and to bring people together. And for today's podcast, our many interviews with Christiana underscored how richly she deserved the Great Negotiator Award, both in her long-term strategy for the Paris talks and how she handled critical moments like dealing with the Saudis. As we conclude this first episode of DealCraft, I hope you've enjoyed and perhaps learned from this sampling of how various critical moments were handled by Christiana Figueres, Henry Kissinger, and English property developer Steve Schwartzman, Rex Tillerson, and Charlene Barshevsky. In a short PDF, I've pulled together what I hope are a few of the key insights and lessons about dealing with critical moments. You can access this brief summary in the show notes. During the next episode of DealCraft, we'll focus on what, for many people, is a less familiar topic that I'll call, quote, negotiations away from the table, unquote, that can often be much more powerful than traditional tactics, quote, at the table, unquote. I know you'll enjoy seeing and learning from how a number of remarkable men and women in business, diplomacy, and in the arts, in fact, negotiated away from the table, in tandem with very persuasive at-the-table tactics to achieve superior results. These include the artists Christo and Jean-Claude, overcoming deep stakeholder skepticism about a massive art project they were desperate to create. Hillary Clinton facing a hostile and dismissive Vladimir Putin. Former Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos negotiating the end of a 50-year guerrilla war. As well as from music super lawyer John Branca, surprised by a killer demand from a major record company that held all the financial and legal cards. Not only are these great stories, but each case will shed light on how to anticipate and effectively negotiate challenging situations, especially in the face of skepticism or hostility, and often where the other side is much larger or more powerful. As we bring this episode to a close, I'd like to tell you more about how I met the negotiators whom you've encountered today. A number of these men and women have been honored as part of Harvard's Great Negotiator Award program. I've chaired this initiative since 2001 as part of the Program on Negotiation, an active consortium of Harvard, MIT, Tufts, and Brandeis devoted to improving the theory and practice of negotiation. You'll also recall two former U.S. Secretaries of State from today's episode, Rex Tillerson and Henry Kissinger, whom we interviewed about their hardest negotiations as part of the American Secretaries of State program. I've co-chaired this initiative with my friends and colleagues, Bob Manukin of the Harvard Law School and the Program on Negotiation, as well as Nick Burns of the Future of Diplomacy Project at Harvard's Kennedy School. 
who, as of April 2022, began serving as the U.S. ambassador to China. Thus far, the three of us have jointly conducted lengthy videotaped discussions with nine former U.S. secretaries of state, from Henry Kissinger to Rex Tillerson, including George Schultz, James Baker, Madeleine Albright, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice, Hillary Clinton, as well as John Kerry. Some of you may wish to follow up in greater depth by reading useful academic studies on critical moments. The show notes will point you to works on this topic by some of my colleagues, including Kim Leary, Mike Wheeler, Debbie Kolb, Dan Druckmann, and Joel Kutcher Gershenfeld. I'm very grateful to Harvard, especially to its business, law, and Kennedy schools, to the Program on Negotiation and the Program on the Future of Diplomacy for their generous permission to use selected audio portions of these great negotiator and Secretary of State interviews. But for now, with thanks to Alex Green for his editorial help, to Avery Kloss for her suggestions and audio magic, and to Isaac Sabanius for his wonderful rendition of Schumann's Ninth Symphonic Etude, which is this podcast's theme music. I'm Jim Sabanius. I thank you for listening and look forward to your joining me for future episodes of DealCraft, Insights from Great Negotiators. Negotiators.